I'm a proud backer of the Paragons of Earth crowdfunder. The creative team of Percival Constantine, Thomas DJ, and Eric Johns have plucked forgotten Golden Age superheroes from the public domain, reinvented them as their own sort of Justice League, and put them up against a Lovecraftian apocalypse. Support this project by going to crowdfunder.com, that's crowdfunder without an E, slash Paragons comic, and read a free sample. Also, Perry, who's been a guest on the show, hosts the Superhero Cinephiles podcast about superheroes in media. Be sure to listen wherever you get podcasts. This episode made possible in part by educator, hobby comic book collector, and pop culture enthusiast Sam Lim. Sam is based in the South Jersey area and is looking to connect with other comics fans as well as retailers. They're also looking for comic shops to explore, so recommendations are welcome. Be sure to follow Sam on Instagram at SZLComics to see their latest comic pickups and shop adventures. 30 years ago, I stood in front of a comic shop advertising the death of Superman in its window display. That moment outside Heroes World set me on a path, a lifelong fan journey leading directly from that tattered red cape to this podcast. Now, together, we mine Superman's vast 85-year mythology by examining, discovering, and reconsidering the stories that have shaped the last son of Krypton. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. Joining me to discuss the Darwin Cook masterpiece, DC, The New Frontier, is the host of the Discovery Debrief and Comic Binge podcast's returning guest, Chris Clough. Welcome back. Thank you so much for the invitation. This is, uh, this is going to be a fun discussion for a fantastic story. I'm really happy to have you here. We've obviously talked about DC The New Frontier in other episodes. Probably most specifically, we did an episode a while back comparing how Superman is treated in Dark Knight Returns versus DC The New Frontier. So we looked at the work kind of in that context. But this is the first time that we're doing a dedicated episode to New Frontier here on Digging for Kryptonite. And this felt like the time to do it. So as I'm sure the audience is well aware, this was a six-issue miniseries. The first issue released on January 21st, 2004. So this is the 20-year anniversary of the release of the first issue of DC The New Frontier. It initially shipped monthly, then shifted into a bi-monthly release schedule, ultimately concluding with issue number six on September 29th, 2004. So a lot to unpack, as there always is, but as you know, I like to start with the personal side of all of this. So when this comes out, where are you in your life, your comic book fandom, and what is your initial reaction to this work as it's first coming out? I actually didn't read this as it was first coming out. I was, uh, let's see, three years in, or no, I'm sorry. I started working as a retailer in late 2007 and, um, when I started at that job, it really necessitated uh, a, a, a voracious amount of comic book reading. Oh no, how serious a problem is that, right? But I mean, as familiar as I was with the uh, specifics of continuity and and the histories of of certain stories for the characters that I loved the most, um, there were other kinds of stories that. Uh, I was certainly lacking knowledge about and certain characters that I needed to to get up to speed on in order to adequately do my job. And it was my manager who suggested that I read The New Frontier. And I said, what's The New Frontier? I don't think I've heard of that. And he he compared it a lot to Watchmen the first time. So, uh, 
we'll, we'll get into that. We'll get into that. His comparison was more just on the basis of um, not deconstructive, but structural in terms of how it uses prose pieces in the middle of, uh, of the actual issues. And it had a higher degree of political consciousness, certainly than, um, than your typical run of the mill monthly superhero title. So, uh, thankfully we had all six issues in our back issue boxes back then. It wasn't, uh, it, I think it was well regarded, but I don't think it had legendary status yet. Even though I think by the time I had started, we were about a year removed from the publication of its absolute edition, which is a pretty good, uh, uh, quote unquote award to receive, or at least in terms of recognition for the story. So I read it in 2007 in its entirety in a single sitting. Uh, and just consumed it voraciously. I, I, I inhaled that story very, very quickly. I, I took the issues home one day, and when I came back to work the next day, they were all read, and, and I was just going to read them, but when I got back to the store, I bought them so that I could keep them, and I still have them. So um, the first time I absorbed it, I think I just remember feeling such an incredible reverence for the collective DC Comics universe that I wasn't expecting because when you hear the word Watchmen to sort of tee up expectations of a story, you think of the deconstructive elements first, or at least I do. And um, New Frontier is such a different animal from that. There are, I think, some fair structural similarities to observe, but... Uh, Darwin Cook is clearly someone who loved and appreciated these characters, and he found a fascinating way to map the uh, the political um, environment of the the fifties and sixties, uh, I guess more like into nineteen sixty sixty one, and uh, and and apply it to certain milestone moments in DC's publication history. And as a political science kid, you know, who, who has a, a useless political science degree hanging on my wall, um, I just found it so fascinating to explore the motivations in that way. Uh, and that's without even touching on things like the, the designs of the characters and really the, the reality, like the, the title of the first issue to me is an inc an, a really important encapsulation of where the book goes, Analog Heroes. Um, that's really what it is. I don't think you fully grasp the meaning of that title in its, uh, in it, with the full weight of its meaning until you actually finish the series as a whole, because it is like it's from another era, but at the same time too, characterizations are so strikingly modern and you could clearly see that new frontier itself, even though it was very much a love letter to the DC universe, a lot of people took inspiration from it for these characters and have applied some of those characterizations to them going forward in the regular title. So there is so much substance with this series. I absolutely love it. Absolutely. Well, no, I envy you that experience that you had of of discovering it and consuming it in that singular sitting. And I, I can imagine what that moment was like. And everything you said is very apt. Again, this tells the story of the dawn of the Silver Age of DC Comics and the birth of the Justice League set within its proper historical context, as you said, from mid-40s through early 60s. So you're seeing the events play out at the time that the comics were originally published. But the 
fascinating or one of the fascinating aspects of all of this is that, yes, you get to see all of the socio-political dynamics at play in a way that you couldn't when those comics were originally being published. So it's recontextualizing all of these characters and dynamics and origins and debuts. And to the last point that you raised about some of the effects or the impact that New Frontiers had, one of the things that I guess I've always kind of been aware of in the back of my head, but that with this reading in particular, I was really more dialed into is this really was my introduction. I think it's fair to say specifically to this version of Hal Jordan and to an extent Barry Allen, but Hal in particular, because at this point in time, 2004, and I I looked up the dates for this. Again, New Frontier wrapped up September 2004. Green Lantern Rebirth started October 2004. So at this point in time, my entire experience with Hal Jordan was as Parallax, essentially, and then the Spectre. So to kind of see the true heroic version of Hal Jordan, and I think there are a lot of cues in terms of the backstory and the characterization that would continue on in in the John's Green Lantern run. And, and heck, even in that Secret Files issue, Darwin Cook uh, illustrates that that gorgeous uh, flashback story or a present day story, I suppose, or a little bit of both. It's been a while since I read it, but I'm due for a reread on that. But that was one of the things that I was so struck by was, was how it served as that introduction for me. And I think, because I was such a fan of Green Lantern Rebirth, and I, I can't help but think that's due, at least in part, to this story kind of priming me to be a Hal Jordan fan. Now, for you, at especially at that point in time and uh, at, at that point in your job and, and getting into all of this and brushing up on these characters and, and these works and whatnot, were there specific characters or teams that this really introduced you to? This was probably a very important uh, introduction to, maybe not since they don't really appear as, a, as an assembled team all that much, but the uh, the motivations behind the JSA, the the thing that I really appreciate, especially after revisiting the the story again, is that Cook lionizes the JSA, even though they don't really appear, uh, except in sort of quote, quote unquote archival material. Right? He uh, positions the JSA as a bit of a moral arbiter about how the government is choosing to respond to this this new world that it, that is it's finding itself in and um i just remember being really taken with the strength of the jsa in this story without even really seeing the team like we see a couple of members here and there of course and there are instances that are alluded to and described in great detail, like with our man in particular. But um, that newspaper article that I think it was written by Iris West in the first or the second issue, um, you really get a sense of how much of a, a heroic foundation they provide and how they feel like the world has left them behind. So it, it kind of uh, under the radar sets up a bit of the conflict that the newer heroes are going to have to overcome in order to get to the final moments of the the main series proper and uh and i really appreciate that that was clearly an inspiration for some of the uh, recontextualization of some uh golden age elements of the jsa 
uh, in the future, you know, stuff that we even saw in the Superman titles. So uh, that I think was what I appreciated the most. Secondary to that is probably just how much attention was given to the Martian Manhunter. Because as much as I was aware of, appreciated, and loved the Martian Manhunter, uh, making him kind of an anchor character for a lot of the the main series, and certainly, you know, they they decided to run with that thread in the movie. Um, that was something I really appreciated because it gave credence to the idea of him serving as the heart and soul of the team that would become the Justice League. You know, we we always, I think, especially if you were a fan, maybe coming up in the '90s, even though Martian Manhunter like went in and out of appearances in the '90s. And the early 2000s, we took for granted the position that he has on the team. So giving a a more modern eye to the origin of the Martian Manhunter in particular and how he uh, has had his perspectives of his new home shaped and how he just reasons that he wants to be a good guy. uh, I thought that that was really charming, but it also challenged him enough to uh to to really get at the heart of what drives him as a heroic force um his moment in was it issue two or three where batman confronts him i think is a good crystallizing uh encapsulation of that because he's confronted with someone who at the end of the day probably wants the same thing but has very different ideas of how to get there and uh, and I love when stories can ask those questions without unnecessarily deconstructing the characters to the point where it's frustrating for people who like them. You know? Sure. Oh, my God. That scene with Batman is amazing. I've got a $70,000 sliver of meteor to take care of the one in Metropolis. But for you, all I need is a penny for a book of matches. Oh, exactly. But no, yeah. I, I agree. I thought the treatment of Martian Manhunter was really interesting throughout all of this. And Yes, the fact that his understanding of human culture and society and and truly his entire persona is modeled after what he sees on television is is such a great touch and and allowed for a little bit of humor, but also felt pretty accurate that especially the way events unfold here where he's in hiding and this is his essentially sole sole means initially of gathering information about this place. So now that was that was really terrific. I so. I had a different experience uh, than you initially because I was reading this as it was coming out. So 2004, I'm a junior in high school and I am working at my local comic shop at that point after school and weekends and summers and whatnot. And I wish I could say I had a more vivid memory of what my expectations were or my anticipation of it as it was coming out. I, I don't specifically other than I, I think I was just intrigued that it was these characters and it, it truly utilizes the, the vast tapestry of the DC universe and of course, specifically the justice league characters. But I think I was just intrigued and uh, loved Cook's style. And I mean, I was on board uh, and in from the jump and the going back to what you were saying about you know, your boss comparing it to Watchmen. I think that that makes sense in a, in a, an important respect. And I was thinking about this too. I, I think this probably did something for me in a similar way that uh, Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns had an effect on its audience when it was originally coming out in that it really showed me even more than I had seen before what comics could be and what comics could do. And I know I've said this a lot on the show, but this period of time, the early to mid aughts, 
there were so many amazing stories from DC, but Marvel as well, even though, of course, my interest and my heart always lies with, with DC. But things like Gotham Central is another one that I cite all the time where it's like, oh my God, like you can do, <laughs> you could do Law and Order in the Batman universe. This is amazing. And, and again, I was just at that point in time as a high schooler, having had experience reading all the Superman books, but that was a pretty insular experience, I suppose. And so now I was broadening my perspective, reading more and, and works like this were coming out and it just was kind of eye-opening. Again, the visual style is so, is so striking. The use of that three panel, uh, you know, per page layout and then those, those splashes and they're so evocative and they're so striking and, and just cook style in and of itself. The, uh, the, the, the simplicity yet the deceptively simple work that's, that's going on there. Like there's so much at play in it and it looks simple, but it conveys so much. It's, it's incredible. Uh, and again, just the way that he was able to weave together this vast cast of the DC universe to tell this sprawling epic story. Again, I think it was just kind of eye opening. I had never read anything like that at the time. And so I think that was probably my biggest the biggest impression that it made on me and why it's remained at the top of my list uh, throughout all these years, even though it's not a Superman story and Superman has his part to play. And at times that's probably one aspect of it that I've wrestled with the most because of the role that Superman sort of has to, has to serve and the function that he has to provide uh, in the story. But yeah, it's, it's, it's been a favorite um, for forever. Hey, have you ever met um, the late, great uh, Darwin Cook? Did you ever get a chance to, to meet him or speak with him? When I was in San Diego in 2008 for Comic-Con, I saw him. Uh, I snapped a picture of him from a distance. I did not walk up and speak to him. And I can't tell you how much I regret not taking that opportunity. The The line wasn't even that long. I think I mistakenly assumed I'd have another chance and, and it never came. Um, I have a lot of friends who have spoken to him and who met him over the years at conventions and they have nothing but great things to say about their interactions with him. I have one friend who has a Hal Jordan sketch in his absolute edition of New Frontier from Darwin Cook. And I told him, hold on to that for the rest of your life, man. But um, unfortunately, I never had the chance. And, and New Frontier was just the beginning of my exposure to his work. The Green Lantern Secret Files that you mentioned, of course, seemed like a nice, uh, uh, not that he needed legitimizing, but it was, it, it seemed like a, a representation of the important role that Darwin Cook played in sort of elevating Hal Jordan again. And um, Batman Ego is probably one of my favorite Batman stories. Uh, and, uh, you know, his Slam Bradley stuff with Solo, which I think is in the new Absolute Edition of New Frontier. Um, but yeah, I, I kicked myself. Not only did I fail to speak to Darwin Cook at San Diego in 2008, I was also right next to Leonard Nimoy and didn't say anything. And I'm slapping myself for that too. So swing and a miss on my end. You know, unfortunately you're, you're not alone in that, right? Especially with, with his, his passing a few years ago, I think saw a lot of stories like that on social media, right? It, it, it happens. That's look, we end the show every time by saying it's about what you do. It's about action. And it's, it's, you know, something that we all, myself included, you know, need that reminder sometimes to take these chances you know, when you have the opportunity uh, and you can't take anything for granted. I, I was fortunate enough. I did get to meet him one time. And if my math is right, it was the first year I went to New York Comic Con, which was 2007. Mm. And I know I've told this story on my other podcast, certainly, and I've probably told it here too. So I'll, I'll keep it quick. But 
I, my goal was for him to be the first sketch in my first ever sketchbook. And I beelined for his table when I, when the doors opened and he wasn't there and he was delayed. And I remember we were at the table for a long time. I wasn't the first one in line, but I was one of the first ones. And I remember he sat down and, and one of the people in front of me asked for a sketch and I heard him say, oh, I'm not sketching today. And I was, I was gutted. I was like, oh, like this was, you know, I wanted to meet him and I wanted to shake his hand and thank him for the work, but I really wanted that, that sketch. And I was like, oh man. But then I saw as he was, as he was signing someone's book, he did a little Green Lantern head sketch. It was very basic, probably what you're, what you've seen as well. And when I went up to him, I said, I said, would you be willing to do, essentially, I think I asked him to do like a larger version of that, or I might've even just asked him to do it that size. And he ended up doing uh, a full page uh, version of that. But I, and I, I like to think I was, I was uh, polite and diplomatic about it, but I was like, you know, I, I would really love for you. I got this sketchbook. I would really love for you to be the first one. Uh, you know, I would love to get a sketch. Is there any way you would, you would do anything like that head sketch? And he was so generous and so gracious. And he did that, that head sketch of Hal Jordan. And as he was doing it, he turned to the people behind me and he was like, I'm not doing this for everybody. And it made, it made the convention for me and I have it framed and it's hanging up on the wall behind me and it always will be. And one of the best compliments I can pay it actually comes by way of my old boss at my old comic shop who, a bit of a curmudgeon and not easily impressed. This is a man who is not easily impressed. <laughs> and since 2007, it, like whenever the subject of Darwin Cook or original art or sketches, whenever it comes up, he always cites that sketch that I got. And he's always like, it's so, it's so perfect because it's so seemingly simple Yet there is no doubt that it's Hal Jordan and there's no doubt that it's Darwin Cook. It is so distinct with such, with so few lines. It's real. I'll, I'll post a picture on social media uh, so people can see what I'm talking about. But uh, I will treasure that memory and that sketch forever. That's a wonderful story. Oh, man. I, uh, yeah, he, that tracks with a lot of the stories that I heard about him. Um, but also too, I mean, I think you can see just the degree of thoughtfulness that he demonstrated in the work itself too. I mean, I've watched an abundance of interviews with him over the years, of course, and, and seeing the, the kind of planning, the rather meticulous nature of, of the stream of events, even stream of events that aren't necessarily depicted in new frontier, Everything is so well built in this series. And I think, I mean, you, you have to start with the man himself, right? I mean, it's just, this is such a well built series and it, it has, I think a pretty important thing to say about these characters, uh, that it, the, the meticulousness just continuously amazes me every time because, uh, you know, the, the idea of interweaving real history with the history of these characters. I mean, we've seen it done before in certain respects, but never to this level of detail. At least I certainly have never seen anything to this level of detail. I guess a possible exception would be JSA, the golden age, but that seemed like a more self-contained story than, uh, than new frontier. I think, uh, I think new frontier is, you, I mean, you said it, the, the cast is sprawling, and the people that it invokes too are equally sprawling, including uh, real historical figures. So 
I mean, I didn't expect to see a cameo from Vice President Nixon or, or you know, uh, even some words from Roy Cohn, uh, who's part of HUAC, you know, a lawyer, part of HUAC. And, um, and Eisenhower loomed pretty large in this series as well, up through the special that was released in 2008 as well. Uh, which recontextualizes Superman's role a bit too. So we got to talk. There is just so much here. (laughs) So much. I love it. There is so much, but yeah, so we have this, the original six issue miniseries. We have the 2008 animated adaptation and the tie in comic issue uh, that you mentioned. There was also a toy line. I never owned any of the figures. Did you? No, I never really got into the figure side of things. I was more like a, a prop replica person, but even then, I mean, they're so expensive that I never really did it, but I always admired the toys and friends of mine who were big collectors. They still have these. And I mean, they are so evocative of, of the original story. And I mean, they look like the sketches sculpted into 3d, which is really cool. I know. I never got any of the new frontier or DC direct figures myself. I had, I would say during that, that core time that I was working at my comic shop, I was all about the statues and I won't lie. I think there was a part, I mean, I don't know. I was going to say that I was kind of dismissive of the action figures, but that's not entirely true. Cause I always did admire them. And I'm sure like yourself, you know, you're surrounded by them. <laughs> I remember seeing all those. I think that really what was probably the most enticing <clears throat> was exactly something like this. When you had a line of figures <clears throat> based off of a specific story. So whether it was Hush or Identity Crisis or this or Superman, Batman, Public Enemies, those were always pretty tempting. But I just, I don't know, I drew that line for myself where, no, it's statues. The one time I broke that was with the Hush action figures. And I I just, as a collector, I struggled. I think initially I had them in the boxes and then that didn't feel right. And I did what will, I'm sure, make everybody shudder. I took them out of the boxes and I displayed them and then that didn't feel right. And then I ended up just bringing them back to the store and we just kind of had the box of loose figures and I, I just put them in there for people to, to buy. But uh, so all that to say, really my, my focus wasn't there in retrospect. I'm like, man, I wish I had picked up even just Superman one to have, cause they were really, truly gorgeous, gorgeous figures. And then as far as the collected editions, you've hit on uh, most of them already, I think, but we initially had, two volume soft cover set collecting the miniseries. Then of course there's the absolute, the deluxe edition hardcover, which is what I currently have on my shelf. And I suppose most recently a black label soft cover collecting the entire thing. And thankfully these new editions include that justice league uh, animated special. So you really have everything together there. What what are the versions that you have or version? Or uh, versions? I have the, <laughs> so I didn't get the original absolute edition that came out in 2006 in 2019 they issued a 15th anniversary uh, absolute edition that now included the 2008 uh, special and uh, solo number five, which I think was his slam Bradley story that he did. Uh, So it's, it's a little more comprehensive. It's probably the same material that's in the deluxe edition, Um, but I'm such a sucker for the absolute format. And it's, it's a story that I love so much that I, I had to, I had to spring for it. I mean, if there's anything that warrants the treatment and the oversized pages, it's certainly, it's certainly that. One of the things that was, I was, I think a little more focused on this time because I read the Paul Levitt's introduction to to the hardcover. And one of the things he talked about was how back in the day there was, there were 
I, I guess there was more separation between editorial offices and the cross-pollination of characters. So you didn't necessarily have them popping up in each other's books all the time. And that was one of the things that with this work, Cook was able to, you know, smash all of that down and have all of these characters together. So having the losers and the Blackhawks and and all of our sci-fi heroes and whatnot and and the burgeoning Justice League to have all of them together uh, interwoven throughout throughout all of this. So I, I thought that aspect of it was interesting. Yeah, that and that's that rings pretty true to my understanding of what the structure was. Um, I have a a podcast that I've neglected for a long time, but it's it's a passion project called Comics on Consoles, where I delve into superhero video games. And I did an episode back in 2016 for a terrible game called Batman Dark Tomorrow that came out in 2003. The thing is, though, that the story was very, very good. And the uh, they would have cinematic videos between different levels that... Uh, told elements of the story and just like the the art design for it was very strong the voice work uh, it wasn't the regular animated series cast but it was also surprisingly good and just the writing was very very strong and i interviewed the the man who wrote the story for the game his name is scott peterson he had a pretty long run on uh batman the gotham adventures which was a batman animated series tie-in comic but he was also uh, I found out while interviewing him for that discussion, he was the liaison editor for the Batman office at DC for a number of years. He One of the anecdotes that he told me was being in the room when Chuck Dixon broke Bane uh, for the first time. So it was pretty, pretty cool. But he talked about having to be the person who said no if there were other people at different offices that wanted to use Batman or a related character. And um, I remember just kind of being surprised at that the rigidity that seemed to be in place between the different offices and the different characters. But I mean, with a story like this, you don't really need to have that kind of larger, uh, I guess just figuring out how things are going to weave in here when it's a separate kind of story. It, I mean, the, the, I don't, to my recollection, the Elseworlds label was never on new frontier, but for all intents and purposes, that's what it is. So go with it. And I mean, it's the, it's one of the most truthful alternate visions of Batman I've ever seen in, uh, in, in a story that is separate from the main DC continuity. Uh, and ultimately, you know, I think you can apply that same kind of philosophy to Superman who actually maybe might have some subterfuge over the course of the story that we didn't actually get to see until years later. But, uh, that rigidity, yeah, I'm glad that he was able to knock those barriers down because the size of the cast and the invocation of everybody from, you know, a version of Task Force X, we have Colonel Flagg present here, to the Challengers of the Unknown, uh, as well as the the characters of the Justice League and, you know, someone like Slam Bradley, in addition to the characters that everybody knows. Uh, this I, I don't see this as anything more than just an extremely excellent well-crafted meticulous celebration of everything that is dc comics and th that's a hard thing to pull off but he did it absolutely it's funny i i agree this certainly exists outside of mainline continuity yet if dan DiDio's 5g plan had come to fruition this i guess would have fit there right because the whole idea was that the characters would have been there quote unquote actual ages based on <laughs> based on when they appeared but in any event yes it's certainly its own thing and 
there's, I think one of my favorite sequences in the whole thing is the Las Vegas piece. And of course, what stands out the most is Wildcat's last hurrah in the ring, Ted Grant. Uh, and then, of course, the Captain Cold attack and Barry saving the day and don't ever mess with my iris, which is one of my favorite moments from the whole thing. But in between all of that, you have a bunch of characters in their civilian guys attending this fight. You've got Bruce and Ollie and Lois. You've got Rick Flagg and Carol Ferris. You've got Selena Kyle and Dinah Lance. Like you've got all of all of these people here, some interacting, some not. It's and it it gives the story and this universe such a a lived in feel. And these characters feel like people. I know the stories are very different in different spirits, but that's whenever we talk about identity crisis, that's kind of one of the things that always resonated with me about that story was making it feel like this was actually a community of people. Yes, they're larger than life and they're costumed adventurers, but they're people and they socialize and they get together for dinner and Lois isn't a great cook and it's kind of known. Little things like that give give these stories so much texture. And so seeing uh, something similar play out in this definitely resonated. Uh, and I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, I think that uh, what you point out is absolutely true and it lends itself to uh, just an, another example of how meticulously this was built. Um, because you also, during that those moments, you have allusions to some of the challenges that Hal Jordan is wrestling with. Um, you know, we get to see pretty blatantly how uh, fear has always been a recurring theme for Hal Jordan, especially since the early 2000s. But uh, the way that Cook depicted this sort of debilitating moment for Hal uh, was very, uh, very striking. I remember just being shocked the first time that I read uh, the moment where he descended on the, the North Korean soldier and then going into the moments in Las Vegas, like he's a little freewheeling and he's trying to have a good time, but there's always just this undercurrent of, uh, of challenge that he's facing. And then you have that, alongside these other very humanistic depictions of, of the characters in a moment where the world is not on fire, at least not yet, or I guess it'll be on ice in a moment. But uh, no, I, I really love that too. But I mean, it also leads into, to me, one of my absolutely favorite moments in the entire book and one that I think was very well adapted in the movie was Barry's confrontation with Cold. Because at this time, especially, you know, we were years away from getting Barry back in, in the, the mainline DC books. And this was probably one of the more prominent appearances that Barry Allen had uh, since his death, you know, in a book that wasn't a flash book. But still, um, the, the depiction of Barry Allen by Cook gave credence to, at least to me at the time that I first read this story, I was like, okay. That's why Wally reveres Barry Allen so much because he is just such a reliable and good natured person who's, ex who's, you know, smart as a whip, but, um, he also just cares about people. You know, he doesn't let the, uh, the, the, uh, the intellectualism that he clearly has, he has access to so much information that he combines with what he does, but he just cares about people. And I understood at that moment, okay, this is why Barry Allen is a legend. And they didn't go with that as much as I hoped they would when they actually brought Barry back into the DCU. 
because even when those stories were coming out, as much as I was enjoying them when I was reading them, I was still going back to that fight with Captain Cold in the New Frontier. And I think that, uh, at least to me, illustrates how strong a moment it was in its depiction of Barry Allen. Dude, 100%. I, the, the New Frontier had a similar impact on me with respect to Barry, just as it did with Hal. It was a little different, I suppose, with Barry because even though the times when I had seen him in stories, it had been through time travel or flashbacks or whatnot, but it was still in a heroic light. So it wasn't, again, I think this really went a long way towards me seeing Hal in a, in a different, in a different light, so to speak. Uh, but, but still for Barry, it really, it really built out the character for me and the way he's able to figure out Cold's ruse Cold claims he's got these six cryogenic bombs hidden across the city and Barry very quickly finds the first five and he's searching for the sixth one and then of course realizes, well, there is no sixth one. Cold was smart enough to know, clever enough to know that Barry would keep searching and Cold could use that time. And of course, Barry figures it out and Cold is making his getaway in the helicopter and Barry runs up the stairs and busts through the window of the hotel room and knocks Cold out of the helicopter and they fall into the water and he reprograms the gun and it shoots him up in a thing of ice. And we get the, the great line about Iris. I, I agree. I, and you and I are both fans of Jeff Johns, but the Barry who came back was a Barry haunted by the death of his mother. And that was such a driving force and it colored the character a little differently. And it certainly provided dramatic material to explore, but I agree. I don't know that it necessarily captured the spirit of what we got here, especially in this Vegas sequence, which is where we probably spend the most time with Barry. And then, of course, he plays a, a critical role in the climax. And in between, another powerful moment where the government tries to take him out and they set up this uh, this this ploy uh, in the streets of, of Central City with Gorilla Grodd, robot, and they get the drop on him and they're going to, the, these government agents are going to take him in and he is able to escape. And then he makes that announcement on television that, you know, all he's ever tried to do is help and he's being treated like a criminal and he's got to protect those close to him. So good night and good luck. Uh, and then of course he has his turnaround and, and his big heroic moment. But hey, I loved, I loved the treatment of Barry in this. We reference the television series Smallville a lot around here. And there's one Smallville rewatch podcast that's always at the top of my queue. Always Hold On to Smallville, hosted by our pal, Zach Moore. Zach and his guests bring tremendous insight, passion, and humor as they discuss each and every episode of the series that ushered in the renaissance of superhero TV. Listen to Always Hold On to Smallville wherever you get podcasts, and keep an eye out for the other shows under the Always Hold On to banner, including Arrow, DC's Legends of Tomorrow, Superman and Lois, and Star Wars. Aw Yeah Comics celebrates and promotes everything that is wonderful about comics, toys, artwork, and the joy they bring to people. Visit them in person at one of their three locations, Harrison, New York, a.k.a. my local comic shop, Skokie, Illinois, or Muncie, Indiana. If you have kids and have been looking for a family-friendly store, look no further. Join Aw Yeah for exciting events, including creator signings, how-tos, and more. Visit awyeahcomics.com and follow Aw Yeah on social media for more. Their name says exactly how they feel about it. Say it with me now. Aw Yeah! Fat Moose Comics is New Jersey's best and oldest comic book store. Established in 1982 and under new ownership since 2020, Moose sells a wide selection of comics from every publisher and time period, along with action figures, graphic novels, posters, statues, and more. If you're looking for something and they don't have it, they can probably get it for you. They know a guy. Visit Fat Moose in Whippany the next time you're in the Garden State. 
and be sure to reach out via the Fat Moose Comics Facebook page. I want to jump back to Hal for a second. So <laughs> maybe I'm nitpicking a little bit, but I had, I had a thought here. So we learn very early on, and especially in that, in that uh, Korean War sequence, right, where he's flying, we were, what you were just talking about, where he's flying with Ace, and a ceasefire has been declared, but clearly these North Korean soldiers have not gotten the, the memo yet, and they start firing at them. And uh, again, Hal has to parachute out, all, all, that, all of that business. But what we read is an account from Ace Morgan about the events and about Hal's service and this business about Hal not, not killing and not carrying a gun and not using the guns on his, on, his, on his fighter jet. But what Ace says is that Hal is brave in all of these encounters and will bait his enemies and lure them into the fire of Hal's fellow soldiers, right? And I'm saying to myself, I feel like I lose a little bit of respect for, for Hal's principles about not killing. Bear with me for a quick anecdote here, but I very recently caught uh, an episode of Friends from season four, and this is during the arc where Chandler develops feelings for Joey's girlfriend, Kathy, and they something he tells Joey that something happened between them. And Joey's like, would you sleep with her? And Chandler's like, no, I just kissed her. And Joey goes, well, that's worse. And Chandler goes, how is that worse? And he goes, I don't know, but it's the same. And as I'm reading this, and again, maybe I'm being a little nitpicky, but I'm saying to myself, it's, it's great and wonderful that he has these principles about not killing, but he's willing to lure these people to their deaths and make his fellow soldiers do the dirty work. So I don't know that I... I don't know that I have as much respect for Hal Jordan in that respect. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a technicality, right? I mean, I'd have preferred that that explainer not be there if they had just left it at, well, he hasn't killed anybody and he's really trying not to. That would have been sufficient enough to accomplish what they were doing. My guess is that Cook was probably trying to maybe ground it in a, in more of a sense of reality. And it, it would be virtually impossible for a soldier of valor who is recognized for his contributions during a war to not uh, make, not to have encounters that would result in the deaths of enemy combatants. So that's my guess. It was a way to try and have his cake and eat it too. But yeah, I mean, if you drill into it enough, then it might, conjure more images of at least a part of Sinestro's personality than Hal Jordan's. <laughs> it was just, it was one of those things. This is, I, I don't, I've lost count now of how many times I've read this, but this was one of those things where I don't know that I ever really clocked that before, but this time as I was reading it, I, I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> it's not the best, but it's fine. <laughs> We've been talking about, again, this time period that it's set in and this moment in time in DC comics history and comics history generally that this, that this captures where we are segueing out of the golden age and into the silver age. And we have this, this interim period and the mystery men of the world war II era, namely the justice society of America, they've been forced out, forced into retirement. And we haven't yet seen the rise of Hal and Barry and the rest of the silver age heroes. And of course that's what will ultimately be needed in order to overcome the threat of the center that is threatening uh, all, all life on earth. And the ones who have carried on are our trinity of Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. And Batman has become this 
fugitive outlaw who's operating on the fringes doing what he does. And Superman and Wonder Woman, on the other hand, have taken these loyalty oaths and are essentially doing the bidding of the United States government, particularly in overseas affairs. So that's that's where we catch up again with with our Trinity and and particularly with the character of Superman, which this will not surprise you. I want to spend <laughs> want to spend some time on this, but I also want to talk about just this period of time because I feel like I feel like the book does a really nice job of capturing the dichotomy of this era. We, we did not live through this, so we can't speak from firsthand experience, but from what we've read and learned and seen, it seems that there there was this push and pull, this sense of relief coming out of, of World War II and optimism and prosperity and, and hope for what's to come. But on the other hand, you still had all of these issues with, with racism and, and, and women's rights and the Cold War paranoia and McCarthyism and all of these forces swirling around. And again, I think it's just, it's such an interesting backdrop. And I feel like, and do you agree that the book captures that, that tension? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I really appreciate about it every time I revisit it is just how uh, it took pains to depict a lot of the very real social and political upheaval that was taking place during that time. Uh, I mean, yes, of course, we didn't live through those times, but one of the things that brings to mind, there was a, a segment, I think it was around 2010 or 2011 that was on The Daily Show. This was back when John Oliver was uh, was a correspondent on The Daily Show, where uh, he was responding to political pundits who were talking about trying to get back to the old good America, you know, the the the, the idealized version that they felt uh, we had strayed from. So Oliver's tact was to interview people who were, you know, in the prime of their lives during different decades. So he went back and he, you know, talked to people in the eighties, like, Oh, it was terrible. The economic strife, there were such disparities and they just only grew from there in the seventies. Oh, women had to fight so hard for every little bit of their rights. That's why we had bra burnings and, and then, okay, well, what about the sixties? Uh, well, the civil rights movement was kind of a black eye on society. Okay. What about the fifties? Oh, the red scare made everything all terrible. People were crazy. Uh, okay. What about the forties? Uh, we were embroiled in a giant global conflict where we weren't sure if we were going to exist the next day. And his point was at the end, Oh, these people are talking about this idealized version of the country because they're talking about an era when they were children, they could not actually really see the all of the socio-political mechanisms that were in play because they were too young to understand them but they have still taken that infantilized version of you know what what from when they were kids and and applied it to an entire era that could never exist and it immediately brings me back to new frontier because comic book storytelling during this time was children's entertainment. I mean, it was it was trying to uh, offer morality tales in language in, in in a kind of language that kids could more easily understand and potentially apply to their lives. So, by taking the very real um, events and realities of those eras and applying them to like a sense of paranoia around the fact that these kinds of people exist and what they will have to navigate in order to do what they feel is necessary to do. 
I mean, when you see, maybe this was in the, um, in, in the, the follow-up special in 2008, but it still continued the theme where Superman was talking to Eisenhower about bringing Batman in and Eisenhower, like you couldn't really disagree with what he was saying. It's just an, it's driven by an ideology. It's not necessarily driven by, uh, by events as they are as much as what, uh, people would like them to be based on a way of viewing the world. And all of that runs through New Frontier. You are taking the publication history, you're combining it with the the dynamics of these characters and the dynamics of the DC universe that we know are, are you know a bit more of a terrestrial version of it, but still. And uh, and you know combining those things together and seeing what you get out of it. It's such a fascinating exercise in comic book storytelling, and it's a fascinating exercise in historical fiction generally. Um, because I don't know if, if any historical fiction story I've read, frankly, uh, gets at the heart of those kinds of ideas as effectively as something like the new frontier does. It's such an amazing text just on that basis alone, because it forces those stories that were for kids really to mature. Uh, and to be seen through a more mature lens based on real historical context. And it's just fascinating in that respect. Well said. No, I appreciate that analysis. And, uh, you know, another quick anecdote here. So the, the timing was very serendipitous for this. It was lined up with what I was thinking as I was going through my reread. Uh, there's a, a, a very well-known pizza place in Brooklyn, uh, uh, Luigi's. I've never been, but... I watched one of their videos on Instagram once. So now, you know, that means I constantly see their videos on Instagram and <laughs> the older Italian guy who, who runs it and, and makes the pizza. And he reminds me of a dear friend of mine. So that's kind of, I think why I, I continue to watch them, but they have a strong social media game and they're always doing these little interviews with Gio is, is his name. And one of the recent, most of them are pizza related. What's the best pizza is a half slice. Okay. Should you dab your pizza? Stuff like that. But this one, they, they asked him, what was the, your favorite era? And he goes, the 50s. And the guy was like, oh, why the 50s? Oh, the music was great. The cars were great. Everybody was having a great time. And as I'm watching this, I'm saying to myself, well, you know, probably not everybody. And sure enough, of course, in the comments, someone expressed that. And you might you might be able to guess what the response to that was. And there was back and forth. But I think it's probably the phenomenon you just you just described, where he's remembering his youth, and that's maybe kind of conf conflating things a bit. But as I'm hearing him say this, that was my gut reaction. I was like, well, yeah, for some people, not for everybody. There's there's always there's always the positive and negative, and we always have to be able to reckon with that, to accept both and and deal with both. One of the things I wanted to ask you is, <clears throat> in the years since this has come out, whether through conversations at your comic shop or online or on your podcast. I'm curious, have you encountered instances where you've seen people misreading essentially New Frontier as as longing, as 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 conveying a longing for that period of time? And the reason I bring it up is comic book artist Doc Shaner, he's he's posted a lot about New Frontier was a big influence. Uh, on him and, and inspired him to get into this line of work. And he's, you know, spoken very lovingly about it, but there was 
a tweet a little while back where he joked about using his time on a panel at a convention to explain why people sometimes get New Frontier wrong. <laughs> and then people said, what, what are you talking about? And someone commented and said, is it about how people read a story called The New Frontier, all about the human spirit to unite and drive forward together? And the biggest thing they take away from it is yearning for a bygone era and wishing things could go back. And Shaner, I would argue, endorsed that. He wrote back, ding, ding, ding. So even though I don't, I couldn't come across, I couldn't find another instance where he wrote or spoke about it himself explicitly, but he seemed to kind of endorse that tweet. Anyway, it's a long-winded way of saying, just have you encountered that where people kind of look at this and, and interpret it as this longing just to go back to that time? No, that's not been uh, something that I've personally come across. I can see how it could be construed that way. But uh, another layer that's just fascinating about this is how much it is about confronting and not fighting against, but dealing with change, rolling with change. We're moving into a new era. And that's basically like one of the major statements that the book makes at the very end. If you hadn't uh, hadn't totally gleaned it yet, it's pretty pretty clear there on the final couple of pages. Um, but, you know, it's it's like a. I guess you could say that maybe it's more easy to misconstrue the meaning that way because it is uh, it's depicting an era of change for characters that have existed for a long time. So maybe combining the, uh, I guess, more quote-unquote vintage kind of appearance that Cook was going for in the artwork with the fact that they are depictions of the characters as they used to be Maybe people misconstrue it based on those grounds, but I mean, I've always certainly interpreted it as a story about the nature of change and how different people choose to react and respond to it in order to keep moving forward, not moving backward. No, I agree. I, to be honest, I hadn't encountered that personally myself, but clearly Doc had and 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 wrote about it, and I was just curious. But no, your your points are all well taken here. So let's talk about the Superman of it all. Like I said, one of the things that I've had to wrestle with as a Superman fan, and I know you you are as well, is is the, the function that Superman serves where ultimately it needs to be the new generation of heroes who rise up and win the day and step forward and work together. Superman certainly plays that crucial role in rallying them and making that big speech at Cape Canaveral right before he is instantly taken out by the center in a moment that, and I love this work so much, but it almost borders on comical, like how fast he goes down after this rousing speech. Uh, but along the way, again, he's doing the bidding of the government. Uh, and this this is where I want to kind of bring in the, the animated movie a, a bit here, because some notable distinctions between the two, particularly with respect to the Superman of it all. Uh, and what I'll say about the animated movie is it's 75 minutes <laughs> to cover, to cover DC, the new frontier, but it's called justice league, the new frontier. And I think the movie does a nice job of boiling this sprawling epic down to focusing on those core Justice League characters. So yes, you lose things like the losers on Dinosaur Island and you lose the challengers of the unknown and a lot of the Task Force X business and, and so on. But 
the 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 flip of that is that you get uh, a a tighter focus on our core Justice League characters, and so I think it as an adaptation, specifically within the confines of that runtime, I think it achieves a lot. And just getting to see a lot of these scenes that we love so much brought to life in in Cook's style and to hear them performed and to hear the music and everything. I, I think it 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 works. Do, do you I mean what is your overall impression of of the the adaptation? I mean it was a big deal when it came out because I think it was only the second in the line of DC Universe animated original movies following Superman Doomsday that yeah. came out the year before. Um I actually had a conversation with Bruce Tim uh, at a convention in Seattle because that was when Blu-ray was just starting to break onto the scene. And I, I asked him, you know, does, does Blu-ray, does like higher definition make a difference for, for this kind of work that you guys are doing? And he's like, well, I don't know. I don't have a Blu-ray player. So, okay. All right. Well, that <laughs> ask, asked and answered, I suppose. But um, no, I think, I mean, the movie, when it first came out, I just remember being really taken with it. Uh, and, I, you know, since I had just read the story the year before the movie came out, uh, or I guess just, yeah, roughly about a year, I guess. Um, I remember being struck at how much we did get. I was honestly expecting a looser kind of adaptation, maybe kind of in the vein of Superman Doomsday, which did not set my world on fire the first time I saw it or really subsequent times I've seen it, I guess. But uh, it, like, it's fine, but it's just, it's different. You know, it, don't, they would make a movie called the death of Superman years and years later. That was far, at least, you know, with the actual depiction of the, the fight and the death far closer than something like Superman doomsday. So I was expecting a similar kind of adaptive philosophy and it was much straighter because even when you don't see the, the losers on dinosaur Island, or you don't see like the long form depiction of that fight with Ted Grant, they're at least alluded to, like they're acknowledged in the frames of the movie, which to me goes a long way because hopefully, uh, you know, people will watch the movie and they'll realize, oh, wait, maybe I should read the book. And then they'll explore those deeper moments that are, that are uh, in their full context in the book. But um, Nowadays, if this was a story they were adapting, I think they would give it the multi-part approach like they've given to a lot of other pre prestigious DC stories over the years, you know, most especially uh, with the death and return of Superman and the Dark Knight Returns got multiple parts and uh, we're about to get, I think, a three or four part Crisis on Infinite Earths animated movie. Uh, New Frontier would probably at least have been two films if they had kept that approach on the initial adaptation. Maybe they still can sometime. Uh, or maybe James Gunn will want to adapt it as an Elseworlds. Who knows? Uh, but I just remember being um, not mystified, I guess, kind of amazed at how closely the animation style for the movie managed to evoke the book without being, because none of that stuff can ever be one-to-one. -one. Uh, you know, try to have multiple animation cells in Tim Sale's art style. I don't think you can do it. Uh, get it you, you, you can you can only get something like that from comics but with this you know with cook's previous work for DC, uh, warner brothers animation on something like batman the animated series uh it lent itself to this kind of approach 
And the visual adaptation is arguably far closer than the narrative adaptation is. But for the narrative adaptation, nothing to sneeze at either. It's, it is very efficient, although you could argue maybe some of the soul of the book is lost, but uh, less than I expected to be lost was. I'll put it that way. I think that's a fair way of putting it. I, I remember mostly, I think, more through conversations at the comic shop and just hearing people talk about it. I, my sense, my memory at the time was that people, at least in my orbit, weren't so hot on it for all of the things that it had to sacrifice for its runtime. But I feel like even then I felt like, hey, this accomplished a lot within the, the parameters and it ultimately, one of the other things that is so interesting about this, and Cook actually talks about this in, maybe it's the afterward. He talks about it at some point in the in the in the materials. There's no point of view character, but there's no there's no singular lens through which we see these events unfold. We do get narration from a plethora of characters, but it really it really jumps around. And now I'm really going to nitpick here. One thing that I was I don't I don't want to complain about the lettering. But I would have appreciated if the the thought captions had been differentiated in some way from character to character. Nothing crazy, just maybe something a little here and there because they're all the black text and the white box. And there are a few times, in most instances, it's clear who, who we're hearing, but there are some instances where it's like, eh, and I don't know, might, but at the same time, it's a very you know clean, unified look throughout. So I'm sure it was a purposeful choice, but... Uh, in in any event, but there's no there's no point of view character. Uh, whereas the movie, it, I, I guess my feeling of it was always that it felt more like like Hal's movie. But even rewatching it now, I don't I don't know how I wouldn't die on that hill because we're still jumping around a fair amount. But uh, I, I do feel like I do feel the movie is more of Hal's story than the book is Hal's story. So I think you get a, maybe a little bit more of that tighter lens through that, which is either a positive or a negative, depending on perspective. Like, it's funny, because I, I talk about this all the time, especially when we talk about, like when you were here for, the, you know, death metal, we talk about these, these big events. I like a point of view character, but most of those events don't have one and they're not, they're not built for them. Uh, you know, this is an instance where I, I think it works. I mean, I, I don't know that the comic would be better served by, by tightening in uh, on, on one character's perspective. I think that sprawling aspect and the jumping around and seeing events through all of these different eyes, I think that's part of the magic of it. Uh, do you agree or do you feel like you you lose something by not having that, that POV character? No, I'm totally in your camp because this is a story that is rather highly dependent on expository information that is given through those caption boxes. And not only do you get their perspectives, but you get their beliefs. And I mean, if anything, New Frontier is a showcase of a clash of beliefs. You see it very early on between Superman and Wonder Woman. You see it, like we said, between Batman and Martian Manhunter. Uh, you see it with the other kind of political antagonisms that arise between different characters and different characters who are from the government. So if you didn't have that kind of hopping around, you wouldn't get nearly as much contextual information for the turbulence of the time. Because... Cook, one of the brilliant aspects of the story is that Cook established what the ideologies of each of these individual characters were, and he placed them in, uh, in a stream of events that is defined by the politics of the time. So how do they react and respond to those things? How do they work through it in their heads before we actually see them 
uh, accomplishing different actions. So if you had a core character that was providing perspectives on everything going on, you wouldn't nearly have the richness that you do of a variety of perspectives and beliefs that play out over the course of the story. Um, I am uh, not quite in your camp with the captions. I totally see what you're going for. And I uh, absolutely respect the necessity to have that clarity from the outset. But one of the things that looking back on it, since you've said that, one of the things that I kind of like about the reading experience was figuring out exactly who is talking because it's like the contextual clues that are laid down based on what they're talking about, what you know from the things that they've done before. And then when you click it together, it's like, oh, that's who's talking. And I found I enjoyed that element of it personally, but I see where you're coming from. No, but it's fair. And that's even why I was saying, like, I feel like it, you know, was purposeful and, I, and it does have that effect. So I, I you know, I, again, I, I, I totally get that. Uh, and it, so I feel like the by by showing us the events through all of these different characters eyes, I feel like it, it creates this puzzle. And then when you get to the adaptation, you just you don't have all of the pieces. Some of those pieces fall away. You still there's still enough of a narrative there where we can follow the story. I do think the the movie works best as a companion, because when you know the work, when you know the actual text of the, of the comic, you watch it and, for example, Ted Grant's fight in Vegas, you don't see much of it in the movie. It's primarily on the screen and you hear the announcer. But if you know that backstory, you can kind of fill it in and it becomes this really fun nod. So as a companion, it's it's really great. I would be curious for people who only watch the movie if they felt they got enough. I, I you know, and I don't know, I can't answer that, but I, I would be curious for anyone out there, if anyone listening to this, you know, has only experienced it through the comic, did you, or through the movie, was it, was it a satisfying experience? Did you feel like you, you got it all? I mean, I, I would be curious, but the Superman of it all. Okay. So there's, you know, one of the key scenes in this, particularly for Superman's character is one that plays out very similarly in both the comic and the movie, which is that <clears throat> that scene in Indochina with Wonder Woman where Superman arrives and he finds all of these these dead rebels and then he finds Wonder Woman and uh, the, the women of the village all celebrating, right? And Wonder Woman explains what happened, that she was there on her mission. She, she saw these women who had been sexually abused and, and placed in these cages and she freed them and she didn't kill the rebels, but she placed the guns in the clearing and allowed the women to make their own choice. And they decided to execute their, their captors. And then they're all celebrating after. And again, you see this, this, this moment where Superman been towing the line, right. And following the orders that he's been given. And now you have Wonder Woman pushing against that. And I, I guess, let me, let me toss it to you. I mean, what is your, your take on on the Superman of it all, particularly in this scene, because I think this is one of certainly one of the key ones where where it really manifests. But this this role that he's serving and what he's going along with, and then how that puts him in conflict with Wonder Woman. What's what's your read on that? I just I found the depiction of their ideological conflict very truthful because I mean, as much as Wonder Woman is a character of peace, it's also very difficult to ignore how much of her lineage is rooted in conflict and war. And um, I feel like Cook actively acknowledged that by placing them both in this situation, because naturally someone like Superman, especially a Superman of the of the 50s, you know, we, we have 
our own, it's like, this is another like metatextual element of the book. I think is that you think about if you're a Superman fan, you're thinking about what Superman was like in the 1950s. You know, the immediate image is probably going to be George Reeves and, and, and maybe some early barrel chested Kurt Swan stuff. Right. But, and Wayne boring, but I mean, you also have an idea of what comic book storytelling it was, uh, was itself in that era and back then, of course, Superman was the poster child for comic book storytelling. It was more simplistic. So he would come at uh, this kind of situation from a bit more of a, a simplistic perspective. But, I mean, that's another thing, too, is that over the course of the book, when we see the compromises, I guess, that Superman has made in order to continue uh, uh, existing as, as a superhero, um, we're given hints that maybe all is not as it appears. And then it's not until that 2008 special where it's really solidified that, Hey, he didn't lose his conscience very. When, when it comes to the public facing materials, Superman is absolutely going to look like he's completely in lockstep with his government, but we know better. Uh, you know, the, obviously it's beneficial for these characters to be fictional, but we also know from these additional stories that, uh, especially when it came to capturing Batman. Yeah, he might have been bought in at first, but he didn't finish the job because he knew that this was a virtuous guy and one of the people who convinced him of that was Wonder Woman. That short in the 2008 special, I think, is such an important addendum to the main story because it kind of completely recontextualizes what Superman is doing over the course of the story. I mean, we're given hints that he and Batman are on slightly friendlier terms than is implied over the course of most of it. But now we go back and see that he never lost sight of who was actually, uh, who had the greater good in mind. The greater good is a common topic between Superman and president Eisenhower about that matter in that short story. And he never lost sight of that, but it's going to look to certain people like maybe he has, including the readers for a certain period of time. Now, if you want to try and look at it restricted to the six issues, then, you know, I think it becomes a little bit more of a, I don't want to say problematic because I think that's taken it too far, but you could construe it. You could interpret it as a Superman. That's a little bit more in line with the caricature of him that we saw in the dark Knight returns. But Cook also adds that additional humanistic substance to it that Superman, at least to me, the first time I read the story, never felt like a pawn. Like he, he always seemed like he was making the decisions that he did to go along with the things that he did in a very deliberative way. So, you know, on the one hand you could say, yeah, is it, is it the best depiction of Superman? But on the other hand, when taking like the full context of everything that we know that is that has transpired in this version of the DCU, I like the idea that Cook, whether intentionally from the outset or recontextualizing it later, tells us that Superman never really lost his way. He just is accomplishing his mission in a way that you might not expect. He was influenced a little more by Batman than you might expect. Filmmakers and movie fans alike should be sure to attend these film festivals. Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On To Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and Round Reel in Bloomfield, New Jersey. Take it from an alum of two of them. 
Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Follow the festivals on social media for news about events, discounts, tickets, and more. Also, listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts available via a shared universe network. Acme Comics is a locally owned and operated comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina for people of all ages and walks of life. With more than 40 years and a new second location to its name, Acme is a multiple-time Eisner Award nominee. The shop features a significant contemporary and vintage selection, as the Acme team uses their collective knowledge and resources to connect you with the best material. Mail order subscriptions to new releases are available, and all offerings are available anywhere via mail order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay, listen to the Acme cast on all podcast services, and visit acmecomics.com for much more. Hop in the Supermobile and join us for the spinoff podcast Beyond Metropolis, available exclusively for members of my Patreon community. It's a monthly tour across the DC universe, with the signature Digging for Kryptonite style applied to your other DC favorites. Additional Patreon rewards include advanced listens, sponsorships, and more. We offer regular monthly memberships, discounted annual plans, free trials, and a la carte purchases. Visit patreon.com slash anthonydesiato or click the link in the show notes for more. Thank you all. Yeah, well said. I, it's funny though. I had, I think I had an opposite, the opposite reaction to the special, whereas I actually felt more okay with Superman through the core six issue miniseries. The idea that he is, again, essentially following orders from the government, but that it is, like you said, this compromise that allows him to at least be able to be out there and saving lives because he's seen the tide has turned and he's seen others he had fought alongside being forced out. So this at least allows him to continue to be a force for good. One of the things we don't get, other than the business about capturing Batman, we don't know exactly what he's being tasked with. We don't, you know, we don't see that. So that's, I guess that's one question I have. Like, I wonder exactly what it is he's doing. There's, when he's when he's called up in the comic to save the 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 rocket to Mars, he's fighting a you know giant robot, right? So the so the missions like that. But I'm curious more about what what some of those uh, again more geopolitical missions might have looked like. But it presumably, and I would give Superman the benefit of the doubt that he's not doing anything that would morally compromise himself, right? He's still doing the right thing, but at the behest of the government and not not being that leader that he is urged to be by Wonder Woman in the comic and by Lois in the movie, which I, I want to circle back to. But the scene in the camp with Wonder Woman, it's a great scene because the the tension between them is totally believable and you would get where each of them is coming from. And certainly Wonder Woman, like you said, with that warrior background, it tracks that she would see these women and and free them and afford them that opportunity to enact justice. The, the layer that's added that I really liked is that line where, where Superman's like, and you're you're celebrating? Right. So it's like it's that aspect of it, too, where it's one thing that we had this violence take place, but then their response to it, their celebration of it is so antithetical to him, even if even if he could get on board with, OK, they did what they had to do, which he still wouldn't. That idea of of toasting and cheering uh, about it, 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 you know, he would be in such opposition to. And we get that great line from Wonder Woman. There's the door, spaceman, which we get a lovely callback in the comic at the end when Wonder Woman gives him that further push that we need a leader right now. And that's, and then tells him there's the door space, man, like this is your opportunity. This is your moment. And of course, that's when he talks about, you're, you know, you're fighting over masks and uniforms. We need to come together. 
uh, and he's no longer going to be doing the bidding of the government. He's going to do what's right for everyone. Everyone has to follow their destiny and so on. Uh, I want to get to the Batman of it, but with the Superman and Wonder Woman, that was to me one of the one of the distinctions between the book and the movie that I'm I'm I don't know I'm a little bit torn on because the book. The book really focuses on the friendship between Superman and Wonder Woman, maybe even more than friendship at one point when she she plants one on him. And I, I think it, it it tracks there because it builds. You have multiple moments between the two of them in Indochina, and then when uh, she's awarded the medal, but then is essentially said, you're, you know, is essentially told you're done, right? Because she's trying to talk about what she wants to achieve and that's not gonna fly. And then there's that further conversation between the two of them over Paradise Island. And, and again, this recurring idea of like, Cal, you need, to, you need to step up. You need to do the right thing. You need to be this leader. And then that final moment at Cape Canaveral. So all of that tracks really nicely. And then we get that glorious moment at the end where Aquaman rises from the depths with Superman and says, this one's been asking for a woman named Lois. And as comic book fans, like we're there for it because we know Superman and Lois. But in the context, it always bugged me a little bit in the context of the comic itself that Superman and Lois had no scenes together. And then he's calling for her at the end. And it's just, I think that it really relies on just our collective knowledge of and love for the two of them. But in the material itself, again, all of the scenes <laughs> were with Wonder Woman. Now compare that to the movie where, and I want to get your take on this because the movie gives almost all of Wonder Woman's urging for him to step up and be that leader to Lois, particularly in that scene atop the Daily Planet. How did you feel about that change? I thought it was appropriate. It was a nice way to, uh, because yeah, you're right. I mean, there's no real emotional groundwork that is given to the relationship with Lois in the book. Um, but we did get it in the movie. We at least got a couple of substantive moments between them where he, where Superman demonstrates that she is not, not only, you know, someone that he probably loves, but he, she is a confidant to him. And she, since she is obviously a high level journalist, she has a pretty good understanding of the events around her by necessity. So she can be a sounding board. And I mean, she's enough of a sounding board that it demonstrates to us that he can trust her. And, um, and I liked that in the movie. I thought it was a nice way to, uh, to give some additional credence to that relationship because in the book, that probably wouldn't have been an out of place role for her to serve. Um, I think you could still have just as much important, uh, moments and payoffs with Wonder Woman, uh, if they did the same thing uh, that they did in in the in the film. So I actually really liked that and appreciated that. Um, you could argue that maybe the book just it already had too many characters. So why add that and we'll just have a little Lois Easter egg at the end? That's that's fine. But in a movie environment too, Lois I think commands enough recognizability in comparison to a lot of the other characters in the book that it made sense to give her a little bit more of a prominent role. Yeah. No, I think overall, historically, since it's been so many years now, my, my feeling has been very positive towards that change for the movie because, again, it kind of solves that little issue that I had with the book where you didn't have that meaningful moment between them. Uh, you know, the other thing, too, is that in the in the comic, Lois is 
seemingly on board with this anti-costumed hero sentiment, particularly in that Vegas scene. She has some comment about, and I forget who specifically it's in reference to, but about them being un-American. And then Bruce makes a crack about how essentially she's, you know, from Superman's mouth to Lois's typewriter. So I think the by the, by the movie making her be the one to say, okay, it's this country is about more than an administration. It's this this ideal, and that's what you need to be fighting for. Uh, I kind of like that. Again, it does come at the expense of more of that development between Superman and Wonder Woman, but I think it's a worthy sacrifice, and I think it it still works. And you still get those key moments in the movie between Superman and Wonder Woman. Now, the Batman of it all. So. In the comic, very early on, we see the newspaper story about how Superman and Batman had this battle and there was this green smoke and Superman was disoriented and Batman escaped. And and so essentially Superman failed in this attempt to bring Batman in and now he's still at large. And then later on in the comic, we get this information about when we have this conversation between Superman and Batman and they talk about how they staged Superman's defeat. Right, So if it looks to the public like even Superman can't bring him in, then it kind of is what it is. He's still this outlaw, but that'll give him a little bit more more breathing room and he'll be able to operate. And I was totally cool with that. I really like that because that at least shows that Superman is rebelling at least to an extent against these orders that he's being given. And kind of going back to my earlier point where we don't know exactly what kind of missions he's being sent on, but you give him the benefit of the doubt, he's not doing anything to compromise himself. And this lends credence to that because he doesn't think it's right to bring in Batman, and so he allowed him to continue to operate. But then we get to that that special, and I enjoyed it overall. I don't want to make it sound like, oh, it's terrible. But there we see Eisenhower task Superman with bringing Batman in. So that special fills in that gap in the story here. And Superman, I, I guess maybe... You know, to your point, what I did like was actually hearing Superman articulate his opposition to Eisenhower, where it's like, it seems like Batman's working for the good of people. And then Eisenhower has this whole bit about the greater good, and we can't allow this to continue. And Superman acquiesces and agrees to go after Batman. What I thought was so interesting at the very end of that scene, Eisenhower asks about Clark's folks. He's like, and how are your folks? Martha's back acting up again, which yeah. based on the this period of time that the story takes place or that, that the era of comics history, I would have assumed that Jonathan and Martha were not alive. So it was just that it was very interesting. Yeah, that struck you as well. Oh, um, it kind of made it feel the, the arrangement between Superman and the government feel more threatening in a Absolutely. way. Even nothing is said. It's just the undertone is there. Yes. And there is an, um, there is an implicity to the president just offhandedly asking about how his parents are doing that um, I think contextualized his ultimately rebellious attitude in, in another interesting way. But I get what you're saying. I mean, um, Batman having an outsized level of importance and Superman coming to the realization that he should be doing this. Yeah, I mean, I, I could take it or leave it, honestly. I think I, I think that there is something valuable to say about Batman's ability to uh, at least make a very solid case for his way of doing things. And I love in the special the depiction of, well, you, you got a point, you can't trust me, so here. And he gives them his face, you know. That, I thought, was a really... 
strong way to illustrate to us that Superman will see him as a man of principle by doing that. You know, I feel like it's pretty easy to, to see that Superman will like, that's how, you know, okay, I can, I can ultimately trust this guy. If he's giving, if he's giving me his deepest secret, uh, in pursuit of a point, because he knows that we're, we want the same thing, then, uh, then I can see Batman, you know, impacting his outlook on things that way. But I mean, I, I'm with you. There's something I think inherently attractive about the idea that Superman had maybe a longer standing, more rebellious attitude uh, than the special maybe recharacterizes. Yeah. Well, so, uh, so a couple of things. So first of all, no, I totally agree. I think that the juxtaposition of the order that Eisenhower gives him and the comment about Martha and Jonathan, I think that is very purposeful and definitely conveys that that air of of a threat of, you know, don't forget, we know who you are and, and how to get to you. Because throughout the scene, it's not that it's not that Eisenhower is blatantly patronizing towards him, but I don't know. My, my reading of it, it there was a, I felt like there was an, an air, a little bit of an air of that. And then certainly when we get to that to that end there. So I don't know, I, I guess. I'm going to argue maybe even with myself a little bit because I'm continuing to kind of sort this out. I think what what bothered me about the special was the fact that Clark initially did try to bring Batman in. I liked right. my my interpretation of the original miniseries was that, no, like they just kind of worked this out and you didn't have that initial attempt. So I felt like this... Because that helped me to sort of reconcile the Superman as government pawn in the story. And then to see that, oh, he was pushed into doing this and he actually did try. I bumped up against that a little bit. But again, as we're talking about it, there was this apparent threat towards his parents. So maybe that helps account for it. And I know all the people who don't like Batman v Superman are listening to this. And they're like, well, you had no problem with Batman v Superman. What's your problem now? I know. Well, it's a journey, folks. Uh, <laughs> and then, so I didn't, so I didn't really love that aspect of it. And then, and this is such a, like a, fanboy thing but it pissed me off that batman got the drop on him it just you know it falls into this trope again of like oh with enough resources and prep time and he hits superman with this ordinance and he drops cars on him and he uses these sonic devices and of course there's kryptonite and then he's got a an oven that he's going to shove him into or furnace or whatever that contraption was <laughs> and then of course it's wonder woman who intervenes and wonder woman who's able to kind of knock some sense into them and yes, it, I, I thought it was a powerful moment where Batman unmasks and, and that went a long way. And and I, I did like Wonder Woman's commentary towards the end where she recognizes how selfless Superman is to to and to have the humility to allow the public, in the public's eyes, he failed to capture Batman, right? Because then we get into the business about this battle that was staged between them. So that resonated, but I felt like I felt like this story went a long way towards showing Wonder Woman's role in in this trinity, and there's something to be said for that, but I felt like a lot of it came at the expense of Superman. So I don't know. I, I, it's one of those things where it's a crazy thing to say because like we got more New Frontier material from Darwin Cook, and that's a gift, and I will always treasure that. So, but there's a little part of me that's like, ah, I was more okay with filling in that that gap on my own in the original miniseries. What this added, I think, provided more that that I had kind of uh, more of an issue with. So that's, I think, what I was wrestling with. 
And I mean, what you describe is the exact problem with prequel storytelling generally, you know, broadly speaking. Uh, are you going to find that there is more value in seeing that the engineers used to be human like before you watch Alien for the first time? Or was the mystery of the engineers part of the allure all along? Uh, and oh, by the way, this android with an axe to grind basically created xenomorphs as a species. Uh, that This is a huge, weird tangent, and I apologize for that. But it's just to illustrate you know the the value of prequel storytelling and and if it actually says something substantive that you take additional value out of that you did not take from putting those pieces together about what the past might have looked like on your own yeah. um and i think that what you describe is definitely a, a compromise uh, especially if you really did enjoy putting those pieces together on your own that being said when it comes to that moment in this special in particular I uh, I liked it more than uh, I was thinking about how it fit into things, which I think is just because it was an enjoyable read. You know, it's worse if a prequel is answering a question about a, pre a previous event and it's doing it badly, because then it's just going to be distracting on multiple fronts. But at least with this, even if the aim maybe gives a little too much information, um, it's still a Darwin Cook comic, so I'm going to have a good time. <laughs> no, it's true. And, and I think looking at it more through the perspective or thinking about who the story serves, I think it serves, or my view of it, it serves Wonder Woman and it serves the Trinity as a whole better than it serves but not Superman, Superman individually. And that's the problem that I that I feel like I have with it, where I feel like it's it's set up to, again, to to further uh, the Wonder Woman of it all, particularly in this group dynamic, less, and I feel like Superman suffers a bit for it, at least in, this is the way I'm looking at it now. My perspective might change, but that's kind of what I was feeling reading at this time. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with you. Superman would often get the short end of the stick in situations like this. If it's a story that has those three characters, then you might see Superman sitting more moments out than you might think. And I mean, at this time too, uh, I feel like DC was a little bit less willing to grant Superman a bigger spotlight. I think the this came out right as new Krypton was getting ready to gear up, or maybe it was a, a little bit beforehand. But I mean, Superman in the books had had lost a degree of prominence than he, that he had had at the beginning of the 21st century. So. Maybe it's symptomatic of that, but when it comes to just the storytelling itself, I also, I, I would like to think that Cook is just confident in the resiliency of a symbol like Superman that he thought he could take it. That's how I'll probably just personally rationalize it in my own head. Yeah, no, I love getting your take and audience. I would be curious to know your reading. Maybe I'm being a little too hard on it or a little too sensitive as, as a Superman fan. I don't know. I mean, if, if he had at least said to Batman, if I wanted it, you'd be dead already. I would have felt a lot better about it. Yo, speaking of Batman v Superman lines and moments, when Batman gets the drop on Superman and Superman's down on the ground, Batman says, get up, you motherless alien. And I'm saying to myself, Clark, just tell him your mom's name is Martha. <laughs> <laughs> we've seen that's the, that's the way out of this situation it'll solve everything 
It would uh, solve a lot. I mean, honestly, when I went into BVS the first time, I was hoping it would go a new frontier route. Like they were never actually going to be fighting each other all along, but oh well. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, uh, but I mean, well, I want to, I mean, again, my reading of it is when he goes after Batman the first time that he is legitimately trying to bring him in. Is that, that, is that your reading as well? Yeah. 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 When it comes to that. And I mean, I guess I'm okay with it, or at least a little more okay with it because, um, we get to see a moment of revelation that Superman gets to have. Uh, granted it's provided by other characters, but, um, I guess I took some value in seeing what the, a little bit more of what the relationship was like between Superman and the government and, uh, how even if maybe they have some leverage on him, that's not ultimately going to stop him from doing, uh, the right thing and to serving that greater good, even if what he believes to be the greater good doesn't necessarily conform with the sitting president of the United States, you know, um, you, that, that completely separate, like it was already efficiently separated in the core miniseries, but that special completely separates the characterization of Superman from something like we saw in the dark Knight returns, you know, um, because that Superman, he just kind of went along with uh with the orders uh and and didn't really question them and here we at least got the idea in the core miniseries that he was not necessarily going to just follow orders and now we know after the the special even if it tweaks things uh a bit that he has his reasons for going his own way yes yes no i agree no like i think the and I'll, I'll move on from this, but, uh, you know, I, I think that getting that insight into kind of what might be, uh, what the pressure might be on him, right. What might, how the government might be exerting that pressure. I think that was valuable information to have. And yeah, the, I think it's just more how some of this played out that I would have liked to have been, uh, maybe, maybe gone a little bit differently, but sure. Definitely some, some important pieces here, no doubt. Mm -hmm. So we've covered a lot already. Uh, where would you like to go next? I guess I was hoping that we might get a little bit more from um, the more iconic villainous forces of the DCU uh, that we did not end up getting. Granted, you know, does the story lose anything without uh, a greater role for someone like Lex Luthor or the Joker? No, not really at all to speak of. But I would have liked to have seen okay, was Luther in New Frontier, are they going to have any of the businessman component or is he just going to be a mad scientist? Is the Joker going to be a brutal killer or a whimsical clown? I would have liked to have seen how Darwin Cook applied the New Frontier filter to characters like those, especially Lex Luthor. I feel like Lex Luthor could have played more of a role in this. Um, like Villainous Lex Luthor is more a part of the the government at this time seems like a pretty logical assumption, but uh, you know, like operation paperclip, but for supervillains and that would have been cool to see. I'm writing my own script. Nobody cares, but um, you know, it, it's, you can't judge a story by what's not there. Most of the time, at least you have to judge it primarily based on what it's saying and what it's using. And it uses the mechanics of the DCU so well that um 
whenever it's and it's so complete a reading experience i just don't really have any major thoughts about ways that it could be improved just because i find it such a strong reading experience uh from beginning to end and i agree that's you know it's it's funny i guess maybe this is telling when, when you brought up the lack of villains and maybe it's something that should have been so obvious for me to think about, but I don't think I'd have re- had ever really considered that all that much, which I think is ultimately a testament to the story where there's so much going on and we're focusing on the heroes and the, you know, the antagonist here is, is the, the time and the, and the, the forces at work. I mean, even when we get to the center, right? Dinosaur Island, that's this primordial force, this existential threat. It's going to cleanse the earth of humanity before it departs for the stars even that is really just this metaphor for all of the paranoia and distrust that's that's you know uh, taking over. Not the that, center of everyone's lives. Yeah. yeah, I mean, not that it's you know the those problems that are at play are there. It's not that the center is causing them, but that it is causing this worldwide panic and hysteria, and uh, you know, particularly among the, the, the mentally ill and and people who are particularly sensitive or susceptible to this. Um, but yeah, even that, it's not like oh a villain making a speech and they're going to, you know, go, go back and forth. It's no, it's just this force, this physical manifestation or representation of all of the problems uh, plaguing them. And it's the biggest hurdle for them to overcome is just to step up and come together. So having more villains at play would have put a different spin on it. You know, something that might've been cool. I don't mean to keep beating up on the special. I'm so sorry. <laughs> like If the special, you know what I mean? Like if the special had maybe done something with the villains, that could have been a place for them. That wouldn't have taken away from the main story. I don't know. But I, you know, that's the thing. It's like, I could never disagree with you. Would it have been awesome to see Darwin Cook's take on (laughs) on Joker on, on legs? Like, yeah, that would have been amazing. That would have been cool. Yeah. We only really got glimpses of them in variant covers that he did in subsequent years, you know? And, and I mean, we got glimpses of the Joker and ego, but uh, you know, for the most part, I feel like so much of the story and rightfully so was about the hero's, uh, determining and discerning a moral path forward through uh, these institutional forces that are telling them to think and do things a certain way. The other side of that, I feel like Luther could have really stepped into, well, what if someone just went along with that? What, you know, it, it's, it's plausible for me to think of a mad scientist, Lex Luther, who is buying into a nationalist xenophobic argument uh, for maintaining a certain sense of stability. It is a melding of more modern depictions of Lex Luthor with the political realities of the time. That would have been cool, but you know, would have been, it's not to take away from anything in the story. It's masterfully told and it's, uh, and it's wonderfully related. The political realities of the times, at least as we understand them living now are very, very efficiently explored, but a villain a more uh, explicit villain could have at least given another angle on a ne- on a different belief system of the virtues of going along with that kind of thinking that maybe the, the original story doesn't have. No, totally. And I, I will say, as far as the, the quote-unquote villain that we do get in the form of the center, I did love, I thought it was clever the way they're ultimately able to defeat the center, this idea of using Ray Palmer's still... 
is still unrefined <laughs> shrinking process, right? Anything that shrinks will lose its molecular integrity and explode and flash is fast enough to expose the entire surface of the center to this ray. So I thought that was cool. And of course, even that doesn't totally win the day. We need Hal with his ring to contain it and fling it into space. What I want to one other thing I want to say about Hal, and especially looking at the movie versus the comic, the movie, there's one instance where I prefer the movie and another instance where I prefer the book. So in the movie, he doesn't get scrubbed from the mission to Mars and is actually in that rocket. And he's the one who ends up getting saved as opposed to the two challengers of the unknown, as we see in the comic. Uh, I didn't love that in the movie because the whole thing is he wants to get to the stars. And so when you save that for the the climax when he's when he's taking the center out there, it has a lot more impact. So I felt like, ah, you gotta keep him we gotta keep him a little bit more grounded. But then on the other hand, what I liked about the movie was that even though he gets the ring at essentially the same point in the story, he doesn't fire it up and use it until until the climax, when they're in the center and they're against the ropes, and that's where everything kind of clicks into place, and he hears the voice of the guardians and you are the key or will drives the ring and then everything emerges as opposed to the comic where he has that like little trial run in the desert, but then he's doesn't want to use it anymore. I, I don't know. This is getting very minor and nitpicky, but I just, I liked, I liked the way it played in the movie better in that respect. It's more efficient, certainly, you know, and, and, and by tying it to his, his ultimate goal, I think there is a degree of um, emotionality that stems from that. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it, it just speaks to something else that we've talked about over the course of the the whole discussion was just more meat, more overall material in the book that the movie has the ability to draw from. But again, you know, the sign of a good adaptive philosophy, especially if you have to to cut a lot of material out of a story when adapting it is if they're at least, it's not necessarily that they're cutting character development as much as they're just reorganizing it. So at least that was a thread that they did want to serve in the movie that is also served in the book, as opposed to just ripping it out and making it uh, easier to tell in the, in the adaptation. And one thing that was additive in the scene in the movie between Hal and Carol, when she offers him the job, right before he orders the champagne in the movie, she asks him about the gap in his, his resume. And he admits that was time he spent at a psych ward, but he's, there's no shame about it. And he talks about how he's like, I learned a lot about myself at that time and what I want. And, uh, I, I just thought that was interesting and a, and a cool uh, addition. I mean, obviously in the comic, I guess there's more with him and Ace talking about essentially the PTSD that he's struggling with and all of that. But I liked I like that exchange between the two of them. And I loved all the Hal and uh, and Carol business. And of course, the big kiss that they have, you know, by the engine before he leaves. And and that moment in the book where he's like, uh, I, if I am a coward in one respect, it's matters of the heart because he waits not, not only until there's the roar of the engines, but he also waits until his helmet is on before saying, I love you. And I just, I like that contrast between the bravery he displays out on the field versus uh, in, in his romantic life. So I thought that was cool. Yeah. And I mean, part of what I think accomplishes this so much is at least in the movie, like the idea of getting across the original, uh, like intended themes of the characters as presented in the book is the voice cast. I think the voice cast in the movie is 
rather exceptional. It's amazing. And it's I've not, forgotten some of them, and I was watching. I was yeah. like, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, and it's not just too that the casting is exceptional, but this was a movie that was directed, or the the voices were directed by the master herself, Andrea Romano, who uh, DC fans should know all too well from uh, Batman the Animated Series, and of course, you know, one of the key. Uh, elements that makes her voice direction style so distinctive is that they choose to cast based on vocal qualities as opposed to just casting voice actors who put on different voices. Like these people speak their natural speaking voices. It's still not criminal, not that severe, but it is an, a missed opportunity that we didn't get more from Jeremy Sisto as Batman. I feel like his Batman voice is rather exceptional, but Kyle McLaughlin as Superman uh, really gets across the tone of a 50s conception of the character too with enough modern emotional nuance that you feel those things a little bit more directly in a way. Like the, the pedigree of the voice cast in this movie and the voice direction is not something that those movies would maintain going forward, unfortunately. You know, not to knock the casts or anything or the direction, but... Uh, Romano was such a critically important component of the success of that era of DC animation. And it's really plainly visible in these performances because this is a book that is uh, an active enough reading experience on the thematic level that you want that kind of attention in the voice cast. And in this instance, we got it. Amen. No, the voice the voice cast is incredible. I mean, David Boreanaz is Hal Jordan, Neil Patrick Harris is Barry Allen, Lucy Who Lawless. Who I still hear in my head when yes. I read a Barry Allen story. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry. No, no, no. And Lucy Lawless as Wonder Woman. Come on. Yeah. Right? Brooke, Brooke Shields as Carol Ferris. Yeah. I mean, the, the voice cast was was really, really uh, tremendous here. And then, like I said, I had kind of forgotten a, a little bit of it. And then as I was watching, I was like, oh man, and it really took me back. And you know, kind of circling back to what we were saying before, because this is an important point, especially, I mean, this is a separate conversation about the evolution of DC's uh, original animated movies but or adapted uh, <laughs> movies. But it's kind of like, I don't know, maybe it's not so surprising that they did this because this was just a few years after the book had come out and obviously was massively successful and has continued to have this you know amazing legacy. But, but at the same time, they did this before Dark Knight Returns. They did this yeah. before Kingdom Come, which they have still yet to adapt. There are other sexier or flashier, maybe more mar more marketable, maybe is a better way to put it, uh, adaptations that they could have pursued. This, yes, it's the Justice League and it's the formation of the Justice League, but it's a 50s period piece. Yeah. Which I, I have to imagine, I, I would be curious to know what some of those internal conversations were like and from the marketing end, because it's it's maybe not as 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 much of a slam dunk from that perspective. So the fact that we even got this, and again, and we've talked about this in other episodes, but as these animated movies have moved forward, even the ones that have been adaptations like Hush or like The Death and Rain, which I enjoy those movies a lot, but those were done in the animation styles of their respective animated universes, those shared cinematic universes. They weren't necessarily trying to emulate the style of the artists like we saw in New Frontier, like we saw in Public Enemies and, and some of the others. So I guess I'm just grateful that this happened, this movie, and it happened at this point in time. I think the only thing that would the movie would have benefited from now, to your point, is that it almost certainly would have been a two-part adaptation. But yeah. it's like if they were to do it now, 
I don't know. It would be in the style of the tomorrow verse, not to knock the yeah. tomorrow verse, but it wouldn't be the Darwin Cook style. So I'm glad we got it at all. And I'm glad we got it when we did. And I, I think it's, uh, again, especially as a companion, uh, really, really works, really works well. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, the house style would do this story an injustice. So the fact that they did put in the time to come up with a style that was evocative of the original artwork and all, honestly too evocative of the DC animated universe because you know Darwin Cook is a pretty closely tied legacy to that as well a well deserved one but um yeah I mean I'm I I don't know if I would necessarily trust it being done today uh and a lot of it is because andrea romano's retired too i've on if, if i go back and just track the lineage of my personal enjoyment of those movies it stops when she leaves and uh i gotta gotta acknowledge that you know yeah uh i had one other thing on the superman of it all the movie also adds a scene with superman and faraday outside of martian manhunter's cell uh and i like that scene because Superman is the one who says to Faraday in the movie, like, you know, he can leave anytime he wants, right? He's choosing to stay here. Uh, and also makes a comment about how we're both aliens. It's just that he looks a lot different than I do. So uh, again, I, I it gave Superman a little bit more to do. And I, I liked, I liked that placement uh, in the, in the movie there. Yeah. I mean, really anytime we're going to get just a little bit more from him, I mean, I do think that there is a lot of really great material that um, might handle Superman's place in the DC universe more than uh, dealing with some of the the actual events that he takes place in. Obviously, those have a great deal of importance. But one thing that I feel like can be said for New Frontier overall is that Superman's presence looms large over the story, uh, and his influence certainly looms large over the story, too. Uh, or at least a perception of his influence. And then we see the depth of it a little bit more when we spend some more time with him. So I like that it has those layers, but I certainly would never uh, talk down about the concept of maybe getting more uh, from him in a story like this. Sure. But look, it's a tough thing. And again, this is not Superman, the new frontier. It's DC, the new yeah. frontier. So it, it's the, the role that he serves is smaller one than yeah, Superman fans we would probably want, but it's, it's one that's fitting for the story and he accomplishes what he needs to because he steps up and he rallies them in the moment when they need it the most and his seeming death <laughs> galvanizes them further to action. So uh, it, it, it is important. And again, it's just, look, I tear up every time I get to the, even in the comic when Superman and Lois have no scenes together, I still tear up at the end when this one's been asking for a woman named Lois. So it's still, <laughs> You know, it, it, it totally works. Um, one of the other scenes that always gets me is the the wildcat fight uh, in Vegas against a pre-Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, uh, renamed Cook in the movie, which is, of course, a nice nod to Darwin Cook. But as a massive Rocky fan, anytime we get a boxing match, that's a metaphor for life struggles. I'm, I'm always there for it. And the idea that he's fighting someone who outmatches him and is younger and faster, but he knows... Ted knows what it's like to fight for his life, right? In these in these in these high stakes uh, environments, and he's able to channel that and uh, deliver that knockout blow. And I'll spare the audience my full you know puncher's chance 
lecture, but I'll just, just to say that puncher always has a chance and that's the last thing to go on a fighter. And that's why in the ring and in life, you always have to try nine out of 10 times. It might not work, but you just need to land that one, that one blow in the ring or in life. So that's why we always keep swinging. Anyway, uh, when he's like, this is my fight, these are my people. And he, oh, it's, it's, it's great. Like you said, you don't, you don't get a lot of the JSA in this. And this isn't Wildcat. I mean, it is, but he's not in his Wildcat guys. This is just Ted Grant. And you catch up with him at this point. And uh, it was cool. You know, speaking of the JSA characters, to Cook's credit, man, he left no stone unturned because he even gave us that sequence <laughs> with, with the cosmic characters, with Fate and with Spectre and Billy Batson and the Phantom Stranger and this whole debate about whether or not they should intervene and Phantom Stranger's plea, like, no, you gotta let, you gotta let this next generation handle this. Uh, so yeah, I just, I, I appreciated that. It's like, cause it's a question that, that, that feels like such an authentic moment. Cause it's like, as a fan himself, maybe that's something that he would have wondered or anticipated that fans might wonder, well, like, what about, you know, what about Dr. Faye? What about Spectre? So even gave, even gave us that. Well, and that's one of the things that really does uh, emphasize why DC, the new frontier, is the most appropriate title for it. You know, it is not a Justice League story. Uh, it's dealing with something broader than that when you get to the to the actual source material. And that's one of the reasons why this is just such a pleasant reading experience for me every time, because it celebrates uh, what the characters are all about and what they have been and and how if, on top of that how to how to persevere through challenging times when uh, the, the antagonist isn't something you can necessarily punch um, in these kinds of charged historical moments as we see unfold over the course of the book uh, how do characters that have powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men navigate such things when the world was becoming a more politically complicated place um it's it's fascinating to consider uh but it also uh contributes to those themes and tells stories using them without breaking long-standing understandings of who the characters are you know everybody feels pretty close to their larger mainline dc universe conceptions and they didn't have to, you know, he didn't have to stay so close to the characterizations, but his, uh, I feel fandom of the DC universe encouraged him to not want to necessarily contort the characters to fit a particular vision as someone like Frank Miller does often in my estimation, instead to take the characters and see how they're contorted by the times. And, he tells us they are strong because they don't break who they are, even when placed in such volatile times as these. See, look. So that's one of the things that just makes this such a celebratory kind of reading experience for me, even though, you know, sometimes the subject matter does get very dark, but it gets dark in order to show us the strengths of the core characters that we follow and how that flows through this entire conception of the DC universe. It's just so, it's such a joyful read that uh, I, I could never turn down the opportunity to talk about it. Beautifully said. It is, it, it is such a love letter. And one of the, the, the darker aspects of it uh, in, in terms of just the violence and the brutality and when, you know, it gets tough to stomach, right, with the John Henry of it all. And yeah. that's an instance where, and Cook talked about this in, in one of the, you know, the afterward or, or the behind them, there's a lot of behind the scenes material and annotations 
in the, in the hardcover. Uh, but that's an instance where obviously the John Henry Iron Steel character was a '90s creation, but here you know created this vehicle to to show the inspiration for young John Henry Irons, who we see uh, in that final montage at the end. But more importantly, and more specifically, to capture uh, the the very real situation going on at that time, uh, and and to depict it. So you know that that's a key piece of this, right? If we're really looking at the time and what's going on. Uh, the, the the racism and the, the efforts of the KKK in the South and this, this John Wilson character's attempts to fight back after he loses his family and is, and is left for dead, uh, you know, really striking. Unfortunately, that's one of the things that is almost entirely cut uh, from the movie. Just so we see some nods to it here and there, but it doesn't get it doesn't get the development that it does in the book. But I'm glad, you know, I'm, I'm certainly glad that um, it's there. Uh, you know, the other thing, too, and not not to get I won't even get political on this, but. Reading it, it was, um, you know, it's inspiring when all the characters are able to come together. And I think it's from the movie, not the comic. Maybe it's in both, but it's at least in the movie. There's this line, you know, when they're at Cape Canaveral and they're, you know, they're all walking together of like, today there's no Democrats, no Republicans. And I'm saying to myself, like, I, we are in such polarized times. And I guess probably every generation has some feeling of, like, oh, you know, there's some problem, right? But you know, it feels particularly fraught now during these times. And as I'm reading this, it's like, I what what would it take to get people now to come together? So it was it was an interesting experience going back to this, particularly now, because there's that aspect of wow, like it's inspiring to see how they were able to overcome this, and then a little a little I don't know, a little uh, depressing, honestly, to think about where we are now. And it's like I it's hard to kind of see a path to the triumph that these characters were able to achieve. Yeah. I, um, I feel like what it speaks to, because I mean, social scientists have documented that the reason that it feels so, uh, hyper partisan now or hyper polarized now is because it is. There, there. I mean, there are. I, was, I thought you. Were, I thought you were. I'm sorry. I mean, to cut you. I thought you were. I thought it was be like, oh, there's some reason why we're feeling this way, but it's not really. I thought you were going to be like, oh, social media, but it's like, no, because it is. Well, but at this, but I mean, something like social media, I think, does bring it out in orders of magnitude, because really, there have been forces that have existed throughout the history of certainly this country and the broader world where people derive gain from division you know they sow conflict and they are able to find some way to gain from it and because media has become so personal and everybody has a platform uh those forces still exist so you know it's just it's it's going to become far more uh i guess magnified by the way that we consume themes things compared to the way that we consumed information uh 60 or 70 years ago there's just changes that are documentable through history right but um you know the, the, i think what this story says and other stories that have dealt with similar things uh says is that that kind of i guess um unity that can be achieved is usually achieved through adversity you know something rather maybe not terrible but at least uh something resonant has to take place before people realize what they really do need to focus on and that is 
linking arms and moving ahead. You know, it's you could argue that maybe it's an idealistic way of looking at things, but in instances where we've had to overcome our divisions of the past, uh, we do it together. You know, we don't do it apart. We can't do it apart. And I think a lot of DC storytelling and certainly a lot of super Superman storytelling, that's a theme that those stories, uh, really push through. And I mean, in a darker way, it's a story that's been told in the Star Trek universe. Uh, Star Trek universe, you know, primarily is the 23rd or fourth centuries. And they consistently depict the 21st century as basically a, a hellhole in time uh, that led to a third world war that killed 600 million people and shattered most nations across the planet. After that, humanity came together and became a force for good <laughs> in the galaxy. So, you know, you could look at it that way or just, you know, we have it in, within ourselves to try and push ahead together. Is it, it but it's easier to lay down in our in all of our current conflicts. So, will we rise above our circumstances to move forward or will we wallow and uh, and allow those divisions to overtake us? And what New Frontier says and uh, and other kinds of stories have tried to say, I think, is that we'll get there. Sometimes it takes us a little while, but we'll get there as uh, because we can look to something better within ourselves to get there. Well, that's a wonderful and wonderfully optimistic note uh, for us to go out on. Uh, well, first, is there anything else we didn't talk about that you want to talk about? I don't think so. I mean, the, the, again, this is just such a richly layered story and Cook gave so much meticulous attention to detail on every way that the story is constructed from obviously the visual look, the way that the colors are applied, I think, uh, gets across in certain respect, kind of a warm nostalgia before it then reverses into a, a stark kind of horror, especially with the, the some of the moments for John Henry. But um, every element of this, particularly when it comes to reasoning out how the story would play out, what people believe and how those beliefs, the political realities of the time and broad based superhero myths, what happens when you throw all those things together? He thought of m virtually every major consequence that comes from that kind of a, a blender job. And it's fascinating there's so much to get from it. They are truthful depictions of the characters, which you don't always get in these kinds of alternate universe stories. And uh, and it's just a joyful celebration of the history of the DC Comics universe. So thank you for letting me talk a little bit about it. I love this story. My pleasure. And, and look, I don't know that we said this explicitly, but another you know, metatextual reason for Superman's behavior in the story, right? If you look at Superman comics at the time, we had moved past those grittier golden age, initial golden age stories. And we weren't yet into the wildly imaginative and additive silver age uh, era of the character. And you had this in between and, and everything going on in the real world and cracking down on comics and looking at the effects of comics on juvenile delinquency and the effects that that had on the kinds of stories that were being told and how the medium was essentially neutered, uh, at least for a time. So the idea that the Superman kind of fits within that within that framework, it tracks in, in, in that way as well. I, I probably know the answer to this, but it's at least worth mentioning in closing here. 
Cook gave us the six-issue miniseries. We had the animated adaptation, which of course is its own thing, and we got that follow-up special. Uh, during the Rebirth era, Peter Tomasi, he wrote a, a story in the Superman title that uh, took us back to Dinosaur Island and was a little bit of a, you know, an, an homage, but it wasn't, it wasn't a New Frontier sequel. We never got a New Frontier imprint or a line of books or a true sequel from Cook or otherwise. And of course, now with Cook's passing, it would have to be from someone else if anything would ever come to pass. Is that anything you would have ever, that you would ever have any interest in seeing or are you happy to let the work lie in and of itself? Um, not without him. I think he's too singular a creative force to, uh, to, to discount. I mean, that maybe that won't stop them from trying and maybe they'll even do a, a, a decent job with it. But, uh, I mean, I feel like the book is naturally closed on more of these stories taking place. If we had gotten additional stories from him, I do think that there's enough historical runway to explore maybe something similar, but also just amplified because the book ends naturally with the new frontier speech from president Kennedy. There is largely considered to have been kind of an optimism surrounding the national attitude at the time he was elected. So, I mean, I know it's low hanging fruit for a lot of these kinds of stories, but when that ideal is literally assassinated, um, what does that do to, uh, shatter the optimism, especially as we progress further into things like Vietnam and, and the Watergate scandal and, uh, and the economic recession of the seventies. I mean, there's a lot there to see how these kinds of, um, these kinds of characters react and respond and something to be said about those times that has not quite been, uh, addressed in comic book storytelling, certainly. But, um, I think it's 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 best to just talk about the hypotheticals because without Darwin Cook doing a follow up to New Frontier, my fear is that it would just feel like a pale imitation. Agreed. And look, even Cook himself in in the in the material in the hardcover talked about how I forget the exact quote, but he said that there were I guess there were a couple of ideas at some point after the original miniseries, but nothing that they move forward on and. And then that led uh, eventually to the uh, to the animated special. And he talked about that even as like a little bit of an exception because he he had gotten to the point where he just wanted this to 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 be a work unto itself. And so of course I you know I, I respect that. And you know it's one of those things I'm I'm open minded enough to to figure I'm sure there are some creators out there who would have the ability and the reverence to to tell a compelling story kind of within this world. But for all the reasons you said, I I, I agree. I think. This should just be its own thing. And I think we we see things like Superman Space Age, for example, that has kind of a, a, a spiritual similarity in looking at these characters at a, and setting it as a period piece and tracking them over time. And so I think you can do stories that are in that vein that kind of tap into uh, the, same, the same idea without treading on the same new frontier ground. I mean, I... My position has changed, but obviously this was before uh, Cook's passing. I mean, at the time, I remember always saying, like, I wish, because this was before Barry Allen came back, for example. And I remember saying, like, oh, man, they should just do a New Frontier miniseries or series with this version of of Barry. And that could be our way of having Wally and Barry. And, and obviously the, the, the mainline continuity went its own way. But, you know, there was a point where I was definitely more open to that. But yes, that, of course, was when, when Cook was alive. And now... Uh, yeah, I, I, I think there's something very 
important and special, <laughs> sacred almost, about being able to kind of say like this, this is the work, this is it, and it, it wouldn't be touched or reopened. And again, you can do other kinds of stories in that vein uh, without reopening this. Uh, there's something to be said for that. So that's that's where I land on that as well. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's even, uh, at least with me, certainly it occupies more of a position of reverence than something like Dark Knight Returns does, because in a way, uh, I mean, that first story was so strong. Did we need sort of follow-ups? I mean, we did a whole episode on the comic binge about the Dark Knight Strikes again, and I'll just uh, reserve myself by saying it was not for me. Um, <laughs> but uh, after that, you know, Miller introduced additional collaborators like Brian Azzarello to tell additional Dark Knight stories. So. If, you know, in 20 years, Brian Azzarello on his own ends up writing Dark Knight 4, then that wouldn't feel like too much of a departure because he's contributed to the to the, the concept before. New Frontier is so isolated and it's so intimately interwoven with the legacy of Cook as a creator. I just don't see how you could make a New Frontier 2 or New Frontier colon something with any shred of credibility, really, if you cannot have the original creator. Agreed. Well, I thank you very much for joining me for this 20-year anniversary. This is another instance where the passage of time uh, dawns on me. <laughs> Once again, we've had a number of these. Especially, it's funny that I was thinking about this. It was like, the, we had the 30-year anniversary of the death of Superman and the 30-year anniversary of uh, the reign of the Superman and 30-year anniversary of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. But I don't know. It, in, in a way, they didn't hit me as hard because I was a kid then. And so in my mind, it's like, yeah, it's a lot of years, but it's like, well, I was a little kid and I'm a grown man now. This is almost worse, <laughs> this 20-year anniversary, because it's like I was 16 when this came out and... I don't, you know, in my head, I always feel like I'm like, I don't know, 19 or 20. And then this just really smacks me in the face. that It's like, no, <laughs> a lot older than that. <laughs> you know, I'm scared because I feel like in four years, they're going to do 20th anniversary revival screenings of the Dark Knight. And I'm just going to go, oh my God. Oh, wow. I know. Really? But. I know it's like when you hear when you hear people talking about how like oh yeah when I was a little kid I saw Iron Man it's like get out of here <laughs> yeah get out. exactly how must people have felt when I went to watch the Star Wars special editions in 1997 and went oh wow 20 years is so long ago and I'm sure there were fans who you know were in our position who had seen Star Wars when they were kids and just being like oh, come on you really I we know. were there first. I know. Well, listen. I'll try not to be a curmudgeonly old man about it. It's <laughs> going to happen. So I'll do my know. best as well. But listen, I, I always enjoy our chats and I always appreciate your thoughtfulness, your insight. It was great to be able to talk about this. Uh, this was this was such a formative series. I it's It's been at the top of my list. It is, it is my all-time favorite comic book story. Uh, it doesn't have, again, look, Death of Superman occupies a very unique place <laughs> for me. But just in terms of... Uh, you know, kind of what I consider to be the the best. I mean, it, it's it's up there at the top and it has been, and I, I enjoyed rereading and rewatching and discussing. So I thank you for your time and where would you like to direct folks? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you again for the invitation. I really appreciate it. It's always a thrill to 
to talk about a favorite story. So uh, thanks again for having me on. Uh, feel free to check. You can find me pretty much at any major social media network at Chris Clow, C-H-R-I-S-C-L-O-W. Feel free to drop me a line and, and say hello, and I'll be happy to say hello back. Uh, the comic binge is where most of my regular current material is. Uh, it's a YouTube channel. Uh, we just focus on different topics of comics, different stories, and we just kind of riff in a live stream. It's, uh, you know, if it, if, if a mistake happens on live TV, it wasn't a mistake. We go, we kind of roll with that philosophy every once in a while, just out of necessity. But, uh, we talk about a lot of different kinds of comic book stories and comic book events. Uh, I have a sub-series on there called Nights Never Die, where we're methodically going through individual issues of Grant Morrison's Batman run. Uh, there was a good conversation on the channel recently about the new volume of Ultimate Spider-Man that was started by Jonathan Hickman based on the first issue. I was not part of that conversation, but it was a great conversation, and it's a fascinating book, uh, and I encourage people to check it out. Um, and then other than that, Discovery Debrief, a Star Trek podcast, is going to be coming back reasonably soon we have the fifth season of star trek discovery in april and that's going to be the last season of that show so we'll do recaps there but uh we also have just other fun star trek topics that that come across our minds that we like to talk about too right on all right well everyone check it out chris thank you audience thank you i always appreciate you tuning in thank you for joining us for this 20 year anniversary of dc the new frontier Make sure you come back next week for another all-new episode. I will be joined by recent Action Comics writer Philip Kennedy Johnson. Don't miss it. Until then, as always, it's about what you do. It's about action. This podcast is an affiliate of BCW Supplies. The next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP to save 10% on your order. That's FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions. It helps support the show, too. Many of you have already used this code, and I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Be sure to check out our sister podcast series, another exciting episode in The Adventures of Superman, an episode-by-episode -episode breakdown of the classic George Reeves television show, available wherever you get podcasts. Please join us on social media, become a patron, and subscribe, rate, and review today. Links are in the show notes. Thank you all. <laughs>